This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Have you ever wanted to just go to sleep and then, you know, like keep sleeping? Not not just snoozing through your alarm, but sleeping all day and then all week and then all month. From Rip Van Winkle to Sleeping Beauty, humans have been telling stories about long sleeps for a very long time. And these stories have been inspired by the fact that some of the animals with whom we share this planet hibernate. Probably the most famous of these creatures are bears, and those are the animals that are at the heart of Heiko Jansen's work at the Department of Integrative Physiology and Neuroscience at Washington State University. Jansen believes that bears have a lot to teach us, not just about themselves, but about us humans too. And one of the big reasons why bears might be such good teachers is that even though we're really quite similar genetically, bears do something that we don't. They hibernate. And Jansen's team's research explores how that affects their physiology, including things like metabolic regulation and circadian rhythms. Last year, a study from the team in the journal Communications Biology found that the effect of hibernation on different tissue systems is really notably different from system to system. But Jansen says that when it comes to what we can learn from bears, we're really just now scratching the surface. Heiko Jansen, welcome. Thank you, Matthew, and I'm happy to be here. You started your career like, well, like a lot of biologists do. You worked with model organisms studying rats and monkeys. You sort of ventured out to some slightly less common research animals like hamsters and sheep. And then it, it appears from your CV in the early 2010s, something changed and you became the bear guy. What was the thing that took your career down that trajectory? Wow, that's a long and, uh, well, not so sordid story. It, it really came down to a fundamental interest that I've had since graduate school, which is related to how animals alter their physiology with the seasons. And, you know, I had been working with sheep and I had even been doing some seasonal work in rats. And that interest sort of carried forward when I was given the opportunity to examine a bear brain, and I teach neuroanatomy, so this was right up my alley. Uh, But what I was particularly interested in was the pineal gland in the bear, which is the organ that takes changes in day length, or photo period as we call it, and converts that into a signal that the body can interpret. And that signal is a hormone called melatonin. And that's a chemical that we have too. Right, exactly. We have melatonin. And although it's debatable how good uh, humans are at at registering changes in day length because we've overcome those natural changes with our artificial lighting scenarios, it's pretty clear that I think we can, to a certain extent, measure those. But we have a pineal gland to do that. And I had studied the pineal gland in sheep for many years and validated some of the ways in which they use that signal to drive their annual reproductive cycles. I thought, now, here's a bear. When you think of seasonality, there's probably nothing more seasonal than a hibernator. These are the metaphor for seasonality, right? Exactly. I mean, hibernation is one of those features that sort of defines seasonality. And so I was interested in, in just doing a comparison between the pineal gland and just simply its anatomy and comparing that to sheep, for example, or a hamster. And What was so fascinating was that the bear's pineal gland is virtually invisible. You have to think you missed it, right? Exactly, exactly. It was like, well, did I happen to throw it away with something that was being cut out? But I've had the opportunity since then to look at a few more and even a polar bear brain. 
And we've done this both with gross examination and with some sophisticated imaging techniques like MRIs. And that was all supported by those different analyses. And when we took a look at sort of the evolutionary scale of pineal gland to brain size, what we found was that indeed bears are not on the same trajectory as most other mammals. They fall off the curve in a way that makes them significantly different. The first time that you get your hands on a bear brain has got to be, I mean, for somebody in your field of work, for a neuroanatomist, this is like, this is prime time. Oh, yeah, it was it was awesome. And, and we've preserved that brain and I use it in teaching neuroanatomy to my undergraduate and graduate students. And everyone is always amazed by the relative complexity of the bear brain. It doesn't look like a rat brain. Of course, it doesn't look like a human brain, but it's more complicated than a dog brain. And a dog is is a closely related species that really sort of opened our eyes to some of the things that we might be missing. Now you work in a lab with 11 bears. And we should say here, I think it's important to say these are animals that were injured or they couldn't otherwise stay in the wild. This center is just a really cool and very unique place to do research. It is one of a kind. Uh, Matt, there is no other brown bear facility in the world dedicated entirely to research. And you have access to bear-sized MRI machines. You guys got <laughs> bears on treadmills. You figured out everything and anything under the sun to, to help you understand these animals. That's right. And much of the work, of course, is driven by, you know, the precarious nature that grizzly bears live under these days as a protected species, but it kind of goes back and forth. There are efforts to start up hunting grizzlies in the lower 48. And so a lot of what we attempt to do is really provide the hard data that field biologists, bear biologists who are out there managing these animals can use to better understand what they need, what they're missing, and these sorts of things. So the treadmill, for example, those studies are being done by a graduate student by the name of Tony Carnahan, who was working for Alaska Fish and Wildlife. And he's interested in understanding what the sort of energy expenditure is of a bear on the landscape. And he's going to take that information and give it to the field biologists so they can try to understand a bit more about the kinds of environments that bears in the lower 48 need to survive. Because, of course, they don't have access to salmon uh, like many other bears do. And, and so it's a tougher life for the bears in the lower 48. Now, your particular research has long been on seasonality and how that impacts the brain. This, of course, leads to the question of hibernation. I'm wondering, like, if I can go way back here, what was it about seasonality? What was it about hibernation that got you going like, I mean, are you just like a sleepy guy? Do you want to like, what? what is the thing? <laughs> uh, you know, I do enjoy sleeping, but... No, it really, it sort of represented to me the pinnacle of a seasonal event. And there's an ongoing debate or argument whether or not hibernation is an ancient trait. In other words, we're all endowed with some aspect of the genetic fingerprint of hibernation, or whether or not it has evolved multiple times independently. And therefore, the mechanisms, if the latter is true, the mechanisms that generate hibernation might actually differ between species. And this might be good and it might be bad, depending on how you look at it. But my fundamental interest is that these abilities to modulate 
physiology on this sort of annual basis really is to me a wide open area of research that can teach us a lot about how physiology, even in humans, can be modified and how plastic it is and how we can maybe overcome some of the problems that we as humans that are so smart um, haven't been able to solve. <laughs> I love a good scientific debate. All right. Ancient trait or convergent trait? What side do uh-huh. you come down on? Oh, boy. I don't have enough confidence to be able to say that um, it's one or the other. The debate is always changing. And people have argued, and I tend to agree with this, that if animals in the tropics were the first to express hibernation, then this may indeed be an ancient trait. And so it may not fall in terms of the argument for um, supporting convergent evolution. But again, I think the data just simply aren't there to make the statement one way or the other. And in part, it's due to the fact that we don't have all the mechanistic understanding of hibernation across different species. If we had that, we could perhaps strengthen the argument that it is a convergent phenomenon. But if we find that these mechanisms are similar, it would help us to fall on the other side and say that this is an ancient trait. The best thing about this debate is that either way we go, we can learn a lot from our animal brethren. For instance, bears become insulin resistant during hibernation. Can you you take us through why that would be important? You know, insulin is the hormone that allows your body to take glucose. And becoming insulin resistant is normally a pathological event in humans that accompanies type 2 diabetes and some other metabolic disorders. But it's also a physiologically ancient event because when you starve someone or an animal, that animal needs to conserve the glucose that its body um, has since it's limited in how much glucose it can make. And of course, in case of hibernation, it can't take any glucose in. So insulin resistance is actually a natural response to those kinds of challenges. And what makes it so fascinating in terms of hibernation is that it's completely reversible. The insulin resistance appears before hibernation begins and it disappears at the end of hibernation. So we have built into the physiology a mechanism whereby this switch can be thrown on and off. And as we understand more and more about this, I think we can translate that into human applications for treatments, perhaps like type 2 diabetes. Because our insulin resistance, when it is generated over time, is it's not so easy to reverse. No, it's not. Let's talk about genetic expression. Bears, like humans, have stable DNA, but the way our genes act can differ greatly, you know, based on what we eat, how much we sleep, all sorts of other factors. Your team found that cells from different parts of a bear's body include genes that are differently expressed during hibernation. In other words, the effect of hibernation on each tissue is different. This is a fascinating finding. It is. Yeah. And we were we were thrilled to see that and even more thrilled when we found that the one tissue that we focus on the most because of its importance to bears is fat or adipose. And that exhibited the largest number of genes that changed between hibernation and non-hibernating seasons. Just to put this in perspective, what we're talking about here is not just a loss of fat during hibernation. It is a complete restructuring of the fat during hibernation at a genetic level. That's a great way to put it. Yes, absolutely. Fat has become 
really the, the machine that sort of drives hibernation. It's the source of fuel that the bear can use and other tissues can use that fuel. The heart can use it, muscle can use it. So it really is vital that a bear accumulate fat to survive up to six months of hibernation. And lots of genes are involved in that process. And we're scratching the surface now to begin to understand this better. I think most people associate hibernation with sleep, obviously, but there's this very other really important thing that's going on. I mean, there's a lot of other things, but one of the things that's really fascinating is fasting, right? Bears gain weight, and then when they hibernate, they lose weight, and then they, you know, stop hibernating, and they gain weight, and they lose weight. In humans, this would most definitely cause all sorts of metabolic health problems. Absolutely. So if we take a look at, for example, the insulin resistance story, one of the ways that humans can at least uh, mitigate some of the effects of insulin resistance is to perform more exercise, right? That's a well-documented strategy for diabetics to begin to resensitize their bodies to insulin before they lose that ability entirely. But, you know, bears are, are not big exercisers. <laughs> <laughs> and, and in hibernation, of course, they're not doing much of anything. And even when they come out of hibernation, it's not like they're on a treadmill running a marathon every day. It's really fundamentally different, I think, in terms of how they throw that switch. And that's probably one of the things that we have the least bit of information on is, is how and when specifically that sensitivity returns. Uh, because these transition periods in the spring, early summer, when bears are coming out of hibernation, really haven't been studied that well. We know a lot about changes in heart function during those transitions, and they precede each of these major events. So changes in, in heart function changes before hibernation, and then changes back prior to the exit from hibernation. But metabolically, when these changes take place, is a lot less unclear. And that's why we've developed this in vitro, this hibernation in a dish model, where we can culture fat cells and we can measure their insulin sensitivity. We can measure their energetic capacity. So um, what kind of energy expenditure and demands do they need? And the amazing thing about that system is that we can modify it by simply changing the kind of serum that we add to the culture. So for example, a hibernating adipose cell or an adipocyte as they're called can be turned into an active season cell by simply culturing those with active season serum from the very same bear. Let's talk about circadian rhythms. These are the cycles our bodies fall into that align with the rotation of the earth every 24 hours or so. What happens to bear circadian rhythms during hibernation? Well, that was another surprising study finding because the historical literature on circadian rhythms in hibernators all suggested, with no exception as far as I'm aware of, that circadian rhythms cease during hibernation. And of course, the animals that were studied were all rodent hibernators. And rodents achieve a much lower body temperature than bears do, which is important to keep in mind. But that lowering in body temperature also has a major effect on the ability of metabolic processes to actually continue. So it's perhaps not surprising that those circadian rhythms stopped. We addressed the question both in field studies and in our so-called lab studies, asking the same question, 
So if a bear's body temperature only drops by four or five degrees centigrade, unlike uh, a rodent, which can go down to zero or below, what happens to their circadian rhythms? And lo and behold, their circadian rhythms are entirely intact um, during hibernation. There is a great reduction in how much these uh, rhythms swing up and down during the day, but nevertheless, they're there. And we think that's one of the important biological features of the bear's metabolism that allows it to function so efficiently. In other words, it's able to retain the circadian rhythm. This is really interesting. You use the word retain. You said they retain the rhythms. And that's mm-hmm. that's interesting to me because I'm wondering here, does this mean that whatever rhythm that the bear was on before it went into its hibernation, it's holding on to? Or for instance, if we were to disrupt those rhythms before the bear went into hibernation, would it maintain a disruptive circadian rhythm throughout? That's a great question. And we don't have the answer to that. We've never done a study where we've tried to disrupt the rhythms. But the one thing that that we have done, and this was the closest that we came to attempting to do something that isn't naturally occurring, is to expose the animals to conditions of constant darkness. And this is a, a classical approach in circadian biology, which allows you to reveal some of the, the, the fundamental properties of this rhythm, its amplitude, its duration, its sensitivity to what we call entraining cues like light, which is normally what keeps the clock on time. And when we did that, what we saw was that indeed the rhythm continued. So it was retained despite being under conditions that may or may not be naturally occurring in a bear den, i.e. constant darkness. We also did this with constant light, which we know isn't occurring in, in hibernation and saw the rhythm retained. But we also did some more diagnostic things where we probed the operation of the clock with light pulses during hibernation in the den and asked whether or not the bear circadian clock can respond to those light pulses by shifting its subsequent onset and offset. The bottom line here was that the circadian clock of the bear was totally intact when it came to responsiveness to its natural cue, which is light. And so all of that together indicated that there's no reason to expect the clock and the bear to stop at all. It's functioning just fine. You mentioned doing these things in the bear den. Of course, you guys work in a lab. How do you create the environments in the bear center that simulate the environments that a bear would have naturally so that it does things like, you know, get sleepy and decide it's going to hibernate? <laughs> well, a lot of this, of course, is driven by the bear's endogenous seasonality. If you look at the bear's appetite, For example, during the fall, you'll see it undergo this huge increase, which we call hyperphagia. And then it slowly declines to a point coming up here in about a month when the bear really isn't interested in food anymore, which is such a striking change. But that signals the sort of entrance into hibernation. And once we see that, we withdraw the food and then the bears officially enter hibernation. But it takes about a month or so to really 
get it all synchronized and established. And then by about mid-January, they're fully in what we call deep hibernation. But we can also simply turn off the lights. The dens are open to the outside air, so they do have an opportunity to sense natural light. But if we simply prevent that light from coming in, we can mimic those kinds of conditions that I talked about earlier, either constant light or constant dark. So we have a lot of flexibility there, but it doesn't mimic necessarily all of the characteristics of a natural den. So we were concerned about that, and thus we partnered with some of our colleagues in Montana and Idaho, and we put collars on bears with light sensors, and um, we tracked those animals in the wild and in their dens and when they came out of their dens. And what we saw was very similar to what we saw in the, the lab, quote unquote, situation where bears expressed in their circadian rhythms, the rhythms appeared sensitive to light. And thus, I think what we saw was, was entirely consistent with the natural phenomenon. You know, I was just thinking, it just occurred to me that your lab, you know, things get quiet with the bears during the period of hibernation, <laughs> but that actually is the time, you know, that you guys are, that you humans are most active because you study hibernation, right? So there's yeah. never a downtime for you guys. <laughs> there's never a downtime. No, it's very nice for the bears because they get to relax and, and sleep for five or six months. But no, that's really the time where our progress really ramps up which is great. It gives the year a nice sort of break in terms of what we do when. And I think that actually helps people. And I know it helps me. Rather than having this constant droning of activity where you have to you know, either teach or write grants or do all this and that, which you probably know in your own career, um, you know, can get a bit tiresome, especially now in the days of COVID. So having these major shifts actually helps to rejuvenate me in terms of seeing, you know, what kind of questions I want to answer next or where we want to go next year. Uh, but it does require a lot of planning. And this brings us back to the whole concept of seasonality and its importance on on everything, but its importance on us too. I mean, you can go back to the song by the birds or you can go back to Ecclesiastes or whatever. For, right. for everything, there's a season. It's a season for you for rejuvenation, just like it is for the bears. Exactly, exactly. And, and that is, that's a pretty nice thing to have because it helps drive our questions. And in part, we thank the bears for that because, you know, they're forcing us to stick to that schedule. It's probably unlikely that we could ever get um, a bear in our center to not hibernate. Now, there have been some examples, especially in Alaska, where bears have access to all sorts of rich food all year round in which bears don't enter a den. So it is possible that it's driven to a large extent by food availability, and I have no problem using that rationale. But it goes beyond that. Changes in day length, you know, those things all play a role in how and when hibernation is induced because it affects not only the bears, right? It affects everything that they eat. Um, it right. affects the wildlife that they prey on. It affects the plants that they're foraging on. It's part of this beautiful seasonal environment that so many of us live in, but it's not necessary for hibernation. Um, as I said before, it's, it was thought that hibernation evolved in the tropics and there the changes are seasonal, but not from the standpoint of photo period or day length. It's mm -hmm. um, due to other things like rainfall and other food availability. You know, there's clearly a lot we can learn from bears in terms of genetic understanding and and targeted drug development and and even 
in terms of seasonality. But what what I want to know is how to sleep for a really, really long time, especially this year. I just I really want to know. So so what do you think? Is human hibernation in the future? Is it somewhere way out there in the future? Oh, boy, that's the million dollar question. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I've long thought that the answer is is probably yes. Maybe not to the same extent that we see in bears, but if we think, for example, about something like space travel, a trip to Mars would have to include some way in which humans could reduce the amount of food that they had to travel with, because that weight limit is just what's keeping us away from traveling to Mars. We can't get that much food off the ground in order to travel that far. There are probably ways to Uh, capture some of these um, elements and perhaps allow us to sleep a little bit longer. But I think that longer sleep would probably only be prescribed for something as dramatic as a long-term space travel (laughs) uh, type of event. But, you know, know, there, there are lots of sort of blue sky opportunities there that still are mostly science fiction, but probably are within reach in the not-too-distant future. That's Heiko Jansen. He's a biologist and a physiologist and an expert in bear hibernation at Washington State University. Heiko, thank you so much. Thank you, Matt. It's been a pleasure, and hopefully we'll talk again soon. And please, if you're ever interested in coming up to WSU to see the bears, let us know. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us, then you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Naomi Ward. Our associate producer is Mia Dora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot, and I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.